welcome to another edition of the scoreboard podcast it is the eighth edition of this podcast and uh, we've got a lot to talk about from the last time you heard from us my name is ola olua and i've got masha joining me on this episode of the show welcome masha thank you very much Olua. it's my pleasure to be on this episode with you and to our darling listeners unfortunately we didn't have one last week but trust me this is going to be a bumper package for you and like i always say i hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as we enjoy talking about it let's start with nigeria the super eagles of nigeria they didn't do quite well in another qualifier match day three of that qualifier it was against central african republic and you probably want to put it down to nigeria underrating their opponents or Maybe Nigeria wasn't just good enough. We saw glimpses of this during the game against Sierra Leone and again now against Central African Republic. Just look at that goal. Maybe not entirely out of this world, but that goal was very magnificent. And how do I explain to my kids in the coming years that that goal was considered against Central African Republic? Very atrocious goal, Masha. Yeah, I mean, it was. And it's not the first time we've seen these kind of things happen, especially when it comes to Nigerian football but one thing I think that the Nigerian team has done very well recently has been doing great work at home and that loss definitely came as a shock I mean Nigeria were all done for right to win that one and the way they actually considered like Riley said was not only atrocious but it was woeful because he expected a lot more from the defense and considering the quality of players that Nigeria have I mean, struggling to score against African Republic, Central African Republic and struggling to keep a clean sheet against them definitely is one that would send alarm bells ringing in what used to be the glass house. And it's also quite funny that a lot of news are coming out about the team, you know, different reports emerging from different sources. We don't know what to trust or we don't know who to believe. But the truth of the matter is Nigeria cannot continue playing like that. And We've seen the Spikers play a lot well. I mean, they can play a lot better than uh, they're currently playing. Yeah, you'd say injuries are suffered and at times there could really be a dysfunction between what the team wants and what the manager wants or what the manager wants and what the team is doing on the pitch. But the truth is the quality in that Spikers team should be enough to defeat uh, Central African Republic. And that, if you were to do that, is surely an indictment not only on the managerial qualities of coach Ganaro, but also the hunger these players actually have for prosecuting these games because i think the last three games have not ended well for nigeria occasionally you get a victory occasionally you'd get a good result but fairly speaking you know the kind of quality i remember i was speaking i think it was with you a while back and we we're talking about the golden generation quote unquote now. yeah i wanted to as part of an episode of this podcast and i talked about this golden generation that is this how the golden generation would waste and we're like the generation is not even golden enough yeah bronze generation you know so it's it's always it's always very interesting when we look at the caliber of players that Nigeria is producing right now, but how to make all of them work together and synchronize their abilities with each other is is the ultimate question. And much like it was for most of the golden generation crop, they really need a, a different manager, you know, to bring the best out of them, or else we might just risk having a golden generation that never really 
list of his promise. I mean, look at all of the teams that have been labeled golden generation. How many of them have really gone on to win something, you know? Apart from the French, the Germans, and let's say the Spaniards, you know, every other golden generation, where almost golden generation has actually win something. Those that don't are the ones I think I should be calling out here. Because, and those that don't, I mean, there's, it's always kind of easy to, to draw a line through them, you know, managers not being good enough, or the players just like that extra oomph, you know, to get it over the line. You know, look at the Belgian national team, for instance. Everyone talks about the golden generation. I mean, they've not been to a final since 1980, you know. So for Nigeria, apart from just having quality players doing good things for themselves across various leagues in Europe, I think it, it has to be synchronized into a system where they are working. And I think that's where we're, we're getting it wrong, especially uh, as, as a national team, you know, getting the players to work the way they would usually do for their uh, for their club sides that's that's where the issue is right now and that's something that needs to be sorted or else might just be left the golden generation on our hands and we'll really not take advantage of it now talking about the manager he came under heavy scrutiny after that loss against central african republic and when you look at coach ganetra since he became the superheroes coach he's not the man that has played the most beautiful brand of football but one thing has kept him going on the job he's been getting results but it, it, it looks like a man that has come under a lot of criticisms in recent times nigerians are no longer contented with the results nigerians want more and it is coming at a time when you would probably say results are not even going his way i'm talking about ganetra right now now practically looking at ganetra it looks like a man that is not even uh, favorably disposed to exploring options, especially at the middle of the park. When you look at that game, even when you look at most games that the Super Eagles have lost when Ganetra has been in charge, we've lost those games from the middle. It is either one injury or maybe it's a midfield pairing and not just working very well. And boom, you get the recipe to just dealing with Ganetra. Going into that game, Coach Ganetra knew he would not be having the services of Ganetra table with Fed in DD and maybe Alex it will be. And it looks very clueless going into that game. At, at the end of the day, for a man who personally I feel has a lot of midfield options, we ended that game with just one midfielder. We ended that game with more strikers and more defenders than midfielders, which brought to question again the tactical ability of Coach Ganetra. I mean, that has, that has always been one of the issues with uh, Ganetra because initially it was a question of him using a system that was kind of alien to uh, the Nigerian fans. Generally, three at the back is not really something we've delved too much into prior to Ganetra. And then he came in and it looked like he could make it work, you know, trying different things, trying different tactics. And then you've seen that slowly but surely he's emerging into someone who is just dependent on the players, you know, putting the players together and hoping that uh, we get a result, which is definitely not what you want for a manager or for a team that has uh, higher aspirations. And talking about his, I don't want to call it midfield bias now because it's it's not it's not a it's not a bias, you know. If you want to play with three at the back, then definitely you should have a lot of with a lot of midfielders because 
you're going to be needing width from uh, your full backs or your wing backs as it were and if you're going to be doing that and you're missing a lot of midfielders i mean it's not rocket science that not only should the formation change but i mean there should be other things done to mitigate that i mean when you don't have high enough midfielders. but then again Roger just seems to be a happy go lucky guy you know wherever the wind blows he goes with it and he doesn't row his own boat you know he lets uh, others do the rowing for him could be injuries could be media chatter that uh, could be player form I'm, i mean it's it's always nice to uh, give a player a go whenever he's on uh, and you know these days or before now when, when you hear ganetra say ahead of game star it's going to be a very difficult game normally if you hear managers say that it's kind of just say okay that's just more like a mind game but these days you really fear for ganetra when he says it's going to be a very difficult game like to take him seriously it is really going to be a difficult game or are we expecting so much as nigerians or we've probably lost our invisibility right now i think i think we've lost it because the the few games where it looks like we could really be a storming force i mean we all remember the game against Sierra Leone where we went four nil up and everyone was happy and then all of a sudden we came back to play out a four draw in that one so it's not it's not exactly news that the nigerian team has been struggling for a while but how can often does not see beyond it is is what is the question because if you're the national team manager you should have an idea of what to expect from your team what to expect from the other team how you hope to counteract it how you prepare for any eventuality and Kenaro really doesn't do a lot of that. I mean, like like you rightly mentioned, the ending of that game against Central African Republic, Nigeria has just uh, a midfielder, you know, and that's not that's not something that smacks of preparedness. That's not something that smacks of thinking ahead, and that's the difference between the Nigerian national team and a, a club side, for instance. You know, for a club side, it's it's week by week, but for a national team, you have to prepare ahead. I mean, you have a lot longer. To think about how you want to do it how you want to approach it because more often than not your opponents are determined well in advance i mean you know the kind of players they have you know the kind of players you have and you know the kind of tactics or formation the opponent can come up with and that's that's where ghana roy is, is getting it wrong yeah you could say we're expecting a lot as nigerians but then who wouldn't i mean we're a nation of three uh, 200 million people who should at least produce a decent 11 to defeat central african republic no disrespect to uh, guys from Central African Republic, but I mean, I mean, Nigeria, if we are disrespecting them, we have every right to disrespect them. They have five players playing in France, one in Germany, the rest home based. Yeah, I understand. So, for for a nation that has the bulk of its squad playing in, in Europe, I mean, we we are really underperforming, and that's why a lot of the lens have been trained at uh, Coach Gennaro right now because if he was doing his job to a T and everyone was seeing the rewards of what he was doing, we would really not be having this conversation. I mean, if Nigeria defeats Central African Republic by three goes to nothing, security at the office will talk about how great the team was and, and we'll literally move on. So that's the difference between having a team that is built to win and trying to craft a team that is just struggling. And that's where we are right now. And if we don't, if we don't change it as soon as possible, we might start to slide further down in Africa. Because there are a lot of teams in Africa, a lot of really, really good teams that have a lot of uh, good players. I mean, the Senegalese, the Egyptians, those from Guinea, 
those from Ghana, those from uh, Ivory Coast, those from Morocco. And if we continue to underperform, if we continue to play down our, our own abilities, we will just continue to slide further down. And it's it's definitely not going to be good for, uh, for Nigeria because Ghana it is when we used to be uh, more or less guaranteed, you know, a place at the World Cup, a place at at the AFCON, you know. I mean, even the under age tournaments, you look at it, you know, there's there are struggles everywhere, and that's a far cry from what Nigeria used to be, at least uh, in the uh, in the under age uh, in the age grade tournaments. So it's it's a lot of problems wrong with Nigeria right now, and Coach Kenaro is just more like an embodiment of, of the bigger picture. Coach Garage at the moment, according to reports, is being owed eight months. And this is coming at a time when almost every international break, the Nigeria Football Federation are announcing new deals, multi-million Naira deals, but we find it difficult to pay the manager. When the manager was coming on board, he said something profound. And I guess he saw today, or he saw this period coming, when he will be owed the lords said he's not coming for the money that money is not his motivation well for someone who has been with gabon before you'd really say he's really acclimatized well into coaching on the african continent at the same time this is a super reduce and we should be behaving as one owing a manager eight months and expecting good results might be two contrasting things that might never meet. Now, looking at Coach Ganetra, you'd expect him to behave like a professional. Maybe you're not even hearing of the players too, which I'm sure they are being old too. Now, there's this Yoruba saying that when you are hungry, you are not expected to hear any other thing again. An hungry man is an angry man, literally. Putting all of this into perspective and the recent performances of the Super Regus, let me hear your assessments, Marshall. Well, to be to be fair to uh, Coach Ganabra, uh, I heard that, yes, he was owed eight months, but that before the game against Central African Republic, that he had been paid off. So he was paid before the game against Central African Republic. And in all fairness, that really should not be a thing. But if, if you're going to be owing a national team manager, then you really don't have any rights to to say any kind of thing about him. Because I don't know if they, like you already said, an angry man is an angry man. If he's not in pay, there's no way he can think, or there's no way he would want to think that these people value his own work. And then he could be like desculate about it, you know, have this kind of laissez-faire attitude uh, to, to everything. But that's really beyond the point. The point is him being paid on. If he didn't want to walk, he could he could come out and say that, okay, the reason why we're underperforming is because I've not been paid. And then there's really no motivation from my coaching staff. My video assistant guys are not really uh, motivated. And that would be understandable. He could quit. He could he could resign. I mean, he could he could stay away for a while. But that's that's different from underperforming. Because at the end of the day, I feel like he knows they're going to pay him. I mean, they, like, like you mentioned, NFF has a lot of sponsors. So getting the NFF to pay his wages or his salary, as it were, would not really be that much of a problem. So the thing is, General Roy himself has to prove that he's not only worthy of that amount of money he's getting paid, but that he would not be owed. Because trust me, if it was someone like uh, a Jose Mourinho or a Samaladice who was in charge of the national team, I, I don't think he would be owed. And that's because they know the quality of work he's doing and they wouldn't want to lose him. 
So those are the things that uh, the Nigerian national team often has to deal with, not because there is a lack of quality, but at times, you know, external issues tend to affect the squad, you know, the manager's not being paid. But then, like I said, for Ghana Raw, him being paid is just an extra part of information that really does not add to what we already have. You know, at the end of the day, but, but the, kind of... But the back story too is good for whoever is listening that, okay, if you are not motivated at your workplace, you're not Yeah, of course. Okay. It's, it's understandable if, if, he's not, if he's not motivated because if he has not been paid, he doesn't have anything to give him that uh, singular motivation. But it's not... Um, enough to justify not playing well. I don't know if, if you understand what I'm saying because yeah, I get you. I get not, you. He would not be the first manager to not be paid. Man, he should ask from a lot of coaches who have done the job for the Spiegels before, and they, they have a long history of not paying. And even Genaro himself, you know, yeah, he must have suffered from it at some point or in the, or the other. So it really is, is not that much of, of an excuse unless he comes out himself to say and i think before the game he was asked and he said his unpaid salaries don't bother him you know probably because he knows he's going to get paid at some point you know so it's <laughs> <laughs> of course that that's how it works especially when it's something he's already getting acclimatized with you know not being paid and and all all right let's move away from nigeria We've seen takeovers and we've seen takeovers. I'm not sure we've seen a takeover as dramatic as the one that has just been concluded right there at Newcastle. And it looks like the drama has just even started with the Premier League clubs getting angry. The reason for their anger, I really don't understand. But like I said earlier, we've seen takeovers and we've seen takeovers. We've seen takeovers that has turned some teams to mega teams. And we've seen takeovers that has made some teams decent achievers. And talking about decent achievers, I'm talking about that at Leicester City. Decent takeover, decent achievements all around. Look at the takeover at Chelsea. Look at the takeover at Manchester City. Look at the takeover at PSG. I mean, those are the takeovers I'm sure a lot of Newcastle fans are dreaming of right now. They are expecting their team to be a team with a history, a team in a big city right there up north in England, a team that has suffered a lot in recent times, going to play in the championship and returning to the Premier League, a team that the, 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 the fans have been calling on the owner to give it up in recent times. I'm not sure that there has been any owner that has come under scrutiny. Maybe we'll talk about the owners of uh, West Ham, David Sullivan and David Gold. Those are the owners too that are coming under scrutiny to sell as much as the guys at Newcastle too are doing. But finally, the Saudi takeover is complete. Let's give it a timeline. What should we be expecting from the guys? Well, I think, you know, if we're going by reports that were here in the English media, they could really spend as much as 200 million pounds in January and not fall far of FFP rules. And that's honestly going to uh, really change or whatever it is. We expect a managerial change at some point. But I, I think what, what they would really be on about for this first season is just, you know, stability. You know, they probably add good players over the winter break or over the winter transfer window. You know, ensure the manager secures uh, a Premier League finish. Like, just ensure you're in the league, and then once the season is over, he gets he gets fired or he gets bought out. You know, that's how it probably works. 
and then their own manager comes in and then they actually started making investments and trust me in in the league you you're really a solid manager and a solid set of investments away from the top six because leicester city have been in the top six for two seasons in a row and how have they done it solid investments solid manager Spurs were always outside champions league from 2011 up until uh, maurice Pochettino came in and suddenly even without adequate investments on large scale now we were in the champions league for three four seasons in a row so that's what happens you know when there's good manager and then elite uh, players are added into the mix and if they can if they add a good manager you know have a bit of stability in two years they really could become uh, a staple in the top six and for a side like arsenal that are really really struggling to keep their head above water they will get pushed down even further spores are currently in a bad rut they could get pushed away leicester city trying to become one of the new top six but really do not have that kind of spending power could also get pushed down and i mean look at aston villa over the summer really got a lot of players in you know wanting to also break that glass ceiling you know they could also really get pushed down you know everton as well you know everton also spent a lot of money and i think this is where the difference between everton and newcastle would come in because everton is a two-team city so in the city of Merseyside, there's liverpool there's everton and that's why i i really must credit what I shake my answer did with at Manchester City because I cannot imagine for the life of me how difficult that must have been to, you know, put a rival team in the heart of Manchester. I mean, the most successful English team. But, know, but they are still having it. they are still having problems with fans. Their fandom cannot be compared to that of Manchester United as much course, as they've they recorded fandom. success. Yeah, the funny thing the funny thing about City is that this whole fan thing in stadiums their fans i don't know for some reason they just do not like the champions league i mean in the premier league they sell out a lot of seats they are one of the most watched teams in the premier league just from their uh, stadium tickets alone and i think they have about fifty-five thousand seats. seats uh, they have a uh, seats at the etihad stadium but when it comes to the champions league there's reticence about it they really do not like the Champions League just for one reason or the other, either because they feel it has wronged them and all. But with Newcastle, you know, it's it's a dream. It's it's really a dream. And once it starts to happen, you you can you, you're really going to tell because all over the city, like like you said, it's a one-team city. Really, there is no Premier League competition in the Tyneware area. Sunderland, who could have. Uh, offered a bit of resistance uh, down in the doldrums in League One. So there's nowhere to go if you want quality Premier League football other than uh, the St. James's Park, which might soon get renamed to the Saudi Aramco Park. Who knows? You know? <laughs> so once once that starts to set in little by little, you can feel the difference between what actual investment looks like. Because according to what Amanda Stavely said they really do not just want to invest in the football, they want to invest in the city. And you look across the various cities that have had uh, 
investments into their sports it has changed the city literally i mean you look at a lot of american sports that's often what happens i mean look at paris Saint Germain. prior to uh, the takeover from the qataris there was really nothing in the paris area that was screaming elite sports and all of a sudden psg is there and then there's an extra reason to go to paris because not only would you be watching the eiffel tower reflects a sunset i mean later in the evening you could watch a champions league game right there at the park the prance with a lot of quality you know and that's what newcastle has missed for a very very long time newcastle have a lot of passionate fan base shortly after the news was confirmed i mean there were a lot of fans in the in in front of the stadium you know all screaming hugging each other in the uk new nusc takeover was number one on the trends list twitter so they have the fan base i mean everyone knows that so apart from new generation fans who are going to be merging outside of the uk i mean what's what's still a sign in nigeria (laughs) trust me newcastle (laughs) are are going to have a lot of fans you know there are a lot of arsenal fans who were kind of too late to jump on the manchester city bandwagon and so they've had to struggle with arsenal for a while a lot of them could could really end up in time where you know if if newcastle continue on this upward trajectory and one thing you can also be all but guaranteed is that these owners will stop at nothing to ensure they get the best because it's more or less like a competition now you know gulf states are done competing with having their own airlines they're done competing with having the most beautiful hotels in the world most beautiful landscapings in the world you know most uh enriched sovereign wealth funds in the world you know they are competing in having soft power now prior to the takeover from uh sheikh mansour a lot of people didn't really know a lot about etihad or the abu Dhabi united group or the kind of power that, it, that they really have over there but because of him a lot of people now understand what's going on same thing goes for the uh qataris before their investment in or their foreign to sports a lot of people didn't really care about them or wonder what was going on but ever since you know we all know who the emir of qatar is because we know he's the one who has been making the deals you know calling this player okay he can go this player he cannot go and you'll be seeing a lot more of mohammed bin salman down the line as just once the once the window starts to open because he will definitely be most definitely as you yeah. uh, be the one bank rolling uh the club so these these are things that you you they would not want to risk it for for anything i mean they've invested a lot of money into it according to a report in the british media they are probably going to pay or reportedly rather are going to pay bains for some of a billion dollars for the piracy infringement so it's not it's not really been a small investment from them and with the kind of backing they have the saudi public investment fund is worth about 320 billion pounds and the sovereign wealth fund of the saudi arabian state is worth about 1.5 trillion dollars saudi aramco which is the the way nnpc is for nigeria yeah, the national oil company for saudi the national arabia. oil company for saudi arabia is worth about two trillion dollars so money is really the list of the problems and exactly how much being spent in football i mean we're still spending millions in football we're talking about people who have billions so money is not is not going to be an issue so they can make mistakes and 
uh, and revert those mistakes, you know, that's the good thing about sports because once you have enough money, once the mistake has been made, you can go back into the market, get another player who would avenge for that earlier mistake. And that's also where I think they need to come in with a concrete plan. But like I said, they have been on this trail for a very, very long time now. I mean, Mohamed bin Salman has wanted to get a club for a while. I mean, 2019, they were reported to buy at Manchester United. He offered three billion pounds. He was told to bring four. And then a lot of things came out and the Glazers were no longer interested in selling. And Newcastle has, it's not been a secret though that uh, Newcastle was on the market for a while. And Mike Ashley, who is just pushing it as a billionaire, you know, I think he has about two billion pounds. You know, the kind of money you spend on a football club, you're going to be bleeding money on, on an annual basis. and. He has actually tried, you know, being at the club for 14 years, really done a lot of work and being being a homeboy, you know, it's it's difficult when when someone has to compete on that level with people who have deeper pockets. Because not only will you be judged by what they are doing, you would have to force yourself to to up your game. And that can be very, very difficult to do if you have one and a half billion pounds you know competing with someone like Sheikh Mansour who has about 23 you know and now there's someone who has 13 14 coming on the scene with backing of over 300 billion I mean how how deep can you go how hard can you compete and that's the difference between what they can do and what others uh, can do right now and for Newcastle it's they, they really won the lottery i mean they, will, they could go from being a laughing stock at 2017 when they were relegated and who knows by 2022 2023 we've seen them doing a lot of good work let's move a bit i'm still talking about Newcastle. i asked about the timeline that what should the timeline be you see instant winning the title or let's uh, just we have floats for a while, maybe for one or two years, then we can go all out for the title. And now it looks like we'll be having a, a very, very difficult time right there in the Premier League. We used to be the top four. We now have a top six. But the top six is not even stable again because we, we keep seeing changes every time. You mentioned Arsenal, you mentioned Leicester City, those teams. You know more like they are not consistent they don't even know where they belong sometimes you see them in the top six and sometimes you see them in the top ten are we seeing a future where have all 20 teams powerful in the Premier League although we've seen all the teams now financially powerful no thanks to the the TV rights and of course some other money they get I, I think that's where the English League supersedes the other leagues right there tv rights is enough for the so-called small teams to even compete but right now are we seeing a situation in the future where these teams can go all out and out to one another in terms of spending power well i'm just going to start with the newcastle thing i, I feel like for newcastle because they are the young guns on the market you know it might really take a while because unlike the way it used to be, before it used to be Arsenal and Man United, and every man, Abramovich came on board, he bought the club in 2003. He bought the club in late 2002. 
and then by the 2004-2005 season he had won the league so it was just roughly about a year or a year and a half before he conquered English football. Chief Mansour bought Manchester City in 2012, in 2008 sorry, and he won the league in 2012. And then FSG got ownership of the club of Liverpool now in I think 2010 and then they won the league in 2020 you know so it's it's the level of investment and also the present competition on ground and right now whether we like it or not Liverpool Manchester City are well ahead of Newcastle I mean way ahead yeah down the line Newcastle could be a solid threat but right now no so I think what they are likely going to do is look for easy pickings and you look at the top four right now Man United, Manchester City, Chelsea, and Liverpool. None of them look like easy pickings. But could we see a scenario where the manager leaves the club and then the club starts to dwindle in fortunes? Or could we see a scenario where there's a drop in investment and then Newcastle sees a place and steps in? Of course, we can. I mean, Chelsea did not qualify for the Champions League for two years and three two two in three years you know that that happened united did not qualify for the champions league for two years in a row and liverpool used to struggle a whole lot before Ayogan club came in and for city they've really been consistent uh, in the top four and that's in no small part to uh, their massive investment so with more money coming in with more investment coming in it's pushing the boundaries of what should happen and I remember tweeting this a while back and I said it's going to get to the point where just being in the top six or being in the top four is not going to be enough to get you a place in the Champions League. So it's, it's going to most likely be the top six, then the top two would have their slot automatically guaranteed, then between points three to six They'd probably have a playoff for the Champions League slots. It's still kind of a bit back into the distance, but down the line, I think it's also still going to happen. And secondly, on Newcastle's spending power, it, it has increased, which would also increase other teams' spending power because it would mean that if Premier League football is not being shown in Saudi Arabia, it would have to buy the rights to it, which would mean more international money coming in. And we all know what that means. And I was speaking to a few friends, I think that was, after like the deal was announced, and I was saying, right now, Javier Tebas of the La Liga and his Bundesliga counterpart, as the CEO of the Bundesliga, they don't know what they are missing out on by ignoring these huge money markets. Because whether you like it or not, state ownership in football is sealed already. I mean, the worst you can do about it is look. And the more you look, you you're be looking, back. and that's just the truth. Because imagine a scenario where a Qatari was owning a La Liga team. Has it happened before? Of course it has. I mean, uh, the Qatar, the owner of Qatar's brother, one of the sheikhs, Sheikh Sarotani, he owned Malaga and he was investing a lot of money in the club, you know, bringing players in, 
bringing managers in quality manager Manuel Pellegrini. And they got to the Champions League. Yeah, they finished in the top four. They got to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. And even for two late goals from Borussia Dortmund, they would have been in the Champions League semi-finals just a year or two after his investment. So imagine how that would have felt for the city of Malaga. Imagine how the league would have been shaken up if Malaga have become a consistent threat now, you know, akin to level of say Manchester City and we wouldn't have just Real Madrid and Barcelona going for the title before Atletico Madrid also joined and even at that we still see Atletico Madrid as a kind of third wheel you know before this season and Leo left Barca and then they've kind of fallen into disrepute now but imagine how the league would have looked like since 2011-2012 till now you know Malaga would have been a lot bigger would have been a lot better probably with a lot more managerial qualities and you know good uh, clubs uh, good uh, signings but that has not happened Malaga have been relegated from the league the Sheikh has had to pull his funding I mean it got to a point where he, he even took out a loan from the club because he, he paid he took a loan he, he gave a loan to the club and he kind of collected his money back now you know because of the kind of rules that forced his hands. So these are things that happen, and you know, you, you want you wonder why exactly they are doing it. Because I mean, the Premier League is flourishing. If they had turned down Roman Abramovich's money back then, there are a lot of owners that would that would probably no longer be in England. You know, I think he was the first or the second foreign owner in the Premier League. You know, back then almost every club was british owned but now out of 20 teams in the premier league just six are owned by brits you know you see egyptian billionaires you see chinese billionaires golf ownership uh, roman abramovich is from russia you know from different uh, different nations the shivadana prava family and not forget the american investors the stan Corinthians, the glazers the fsg group you know these are people who see uh, an investment plan and, and they want to go for it so that's what la liga and bundesliga are missing and to your point it really could happen you know we would see nearly all the 20 teams in england having a strong presence having a strong uh, quality you know and they, they could all really compete for something but then we wait to see how that happens and for newcastle i really am happy about it because I've always been a fan of new money. You know, when when we see of external investment, we are closing our eyes from the reality, and that's what Bundesliga is suffering from. I mean, Bayern Munich are most likely going to win the league this season, next season, the season after, in five seasons' time, and who knows for how long? You know, probably they have one odd year, and then it's like they've won the league 19 of the last 20 times. I mean, we're where does the competition come in? I was reading somewhere and they were like, because of the dominance of Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga, they want to revitalize the way the league is structured. So at the end of the season, they use the playoffs. So no matter how many points Bayern Munich are better than the rest of the league, because we know that if we're going to use just points alone, they are way too strong. They are going to probably use the playoffs format. So once the season is over, playoffs would then decide who wins the league and i feel like that that could really you know change the tide uh here and there a lot of leagues use the playoff formats 
the Belgian killer league, for instance, you know. But, but it's, it's not dominant. a top league. You can't compare the what's happening in Belgium to what, what what's happening in Germany. Germany is a top league. Yeah, but you know the thing is, the, the playoffs can be skewed. You know, you could have an injury. So what what happens to all the good work you've done from August up till May, where you've you've led the league from the start of the season till the end of the season? <laughs> See, I, I've never really been a fan of the playoffs. That, that's why I, I feel for even the championship playoffs when you have to struggle and play and make top five. And at the end of the day, maybe someone in the fifth position is one that will even be gaining promotion ahead of the person that finished third in in regular season. <laughs> that's the thing, you know. So it's 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 really a lot to, to unpack. And I hope that for... Newcastle, they will add a lot of money into the area and that they would really become a force because it's it's been a while and we've waited 10 years for it a takeover that really shook the footballing landscape. I think the last one was the Qatar in 2011. Before then, we had Sheikh Mansour in 2008, Roman Abramovich in 2003. So to be fair, it's, it's really taken a while. But as it should be, that's that's the way the world works. And I feel we might see another Gulf state make a purchase or entry into football very soon. I uh, should just hand it over to them then. If they can rule the world of football by playing international football, at least they want to rule by playing club football. Let's <laughs> see how it goes. But let's just keep our fingers crossed. Uh, every professor like Asen Wenger, maybe in, <laughs> in about two three years, we'll have players going for one billion pounds. Maybe we'll have the first billion pounds player. Well, that's that's a kind of a long way from now because if I we have from... two hundred already, yeah, just one. The only thing that would probably stop that is if we don't have the okay, maybe three years is too soon, let's say five six years. But if we don't have the Mbappe Haaland class of player, we might not see a billion pounds player. But if the Mbappe Haaland were coming, say around 2026, I, I guess they'll be going for the region of one billion. One billion is still kind of too far into the distance. So we crossed the hundred million in 2017, yeah. and in 20, and that was 220. And when, 222 million. I mean, we crossed yeah. the 100 and 200 at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And and so, since then we've not crossed 200 because a lot of people would most likely look at 200 and think it's not it's not worth it down the line. But we so have are you saying are you saying we can't million. we can't we can't we can't have the 500 in in the coming years? No, 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 no. How soon are we likely to have 500? 500? Probably next 50 yeah. years. 50 years. Yeah. Honestly, I wish. The reason, the reason why, the reason why I said it is because you remember one of the discussions we had on, on the on the episode <laughs> where we're talking about free agency. I feel yeah. like yeah. free agency is going to really skew the market. If you're talking in this direction, maybe it will take a long time to have 500. But if we still yeah. have normal transfers. 500 is just within. Because size. how many, how many years? What what is the valuation of the player himself? How much are you going to make from the player? Like you're going to pay 500 million okay now Bassa, Bassa in their mind they put that 200 it was a ridiculous amount that it puts as neymar's release clause thinking no one would trigger it 
Yeah, even to date, it's still it's still ridiculous. You know, I was saying. Okay, look before, at look before, at the amount put into Benzema's deal. If Benzema were still in his mid twenties, don't you think someone would want to like? Let, let's see nah. what this guy would do. It's never happening. Real Madrid, that's one thing. I think, I think Florentino Perez has always been that kind of a precedent because from 2006, 7, no, no, 2009 was when he got back into the presidency. 2009, when he signed Cristiano Ronaldo, Ronaldo's release clause was set at a billion euros. And since then, every player he has signed has been extravagant release clauses. You know, Rodrigo's release clause is at 800 million euros. <laughs> and you ask, Who's going to pay 800 million for Vinicius? Okay, we said who was going to play, uh, pay 200 million for Neymar and someone, no, someone bought it. The 200 million for Neymar was and is still, is still ridiculous and, because. And anomaly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because another you know, anomaly it's... will happen. <laughs> the, only thing would, the only thing would probably be I'm, I'm looking at the scenario where just hear me out, just hear me out, right? So Real Madrid stand. Kylian Mbappe in the summer of 2022 and signed Ellen Holland in the summer of 2022 and then put a billion euros as their release clauses. And then by 2025, they are both still in good terms. They sign new contracts for an extra three more years or for an extra five more years. So they have five years left on their contracts, still with a billion euros in release clause. And Newcastle want to make a splash. And they are getting feelers that Mbappe or Haaland could really be open because the other player has dominated the footballing landscape. And player X, let's say player X is Mbappe, he has dominated the landscape, winning all the Ballon d'Ors, all the golden. And Haaland is thinking, I'm his teammate. I, I really want to win these awards too. You know, I want to be remembered and I want to make a mark. You know, I want to live in Mbappe's shadow. And Newcastle think, you know, if remember we like, someone wanted to leave someone's shadow the last time that <laughs> happened. <laughs> and and Alan is thinking, and Alan is thinking, if I leave this guy's shadow, I could I could really do a lot of stuff myself. <laughs> and and he goes, he reaches out to Newcastle, and you know, they call Mohammed bin Salman and he says, How much is a billion euros? You know, pay it, pay it. <laughs> and then he gets paid. <laughs> And then we have this conversation again, and I look like a fool. <laughs> so you, you, you never can say never. When, when yeah, that's the thing about chat, football. You, you you know, I, I, I was thinking about it. The angle of them running down their contract and wanting to be free agents, very sellable. But at the same time, if we continue in this trajectory, especially just like you just said, Haaland and Mbappe ending up in the same team, we might have this at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, it, it really could happen. And it might, not, it might not be up to a billion, but it really could be outrageous. Especially if Real yeah. Madrid get Mbappe and Haaland, which I honestly, a part of me wants it, you know, just to see what it would look like. But a, a bigger part of him does not want it because I really want that right. And, and you know, know for Florentino Perez, a man who is now really uh emotional about selling players papa will cash out it's not levy exactly that's that's the thing about him it's not it's not daniel levy daniel levy will still be you know like i'm, I'm not sure hurricane will go for a hundred million euro, I mean, pounds again sure, after after this season i'm not sure oh uh, well I, I still think he would be valued a lot but then age is not on his side and he has two years left that's in the field he has performed so far this year 
and let him yeah. thinking, let me just let me just cash out and and let him go. Let me count my, let me count my losses and cash out. Yeah, exactly. All right, I, I think I like this <laughs> this argument and this <laughs> about this million pounds player. I really want to talk about this whole Newcastle thing because I was speaking with a friend and he said he wants to really know a lot about what happened you know, behind the scenes, why it took this long, and all of that. So I'll just okay. only take like okay. two, three minutes. Okay, just, you know, just, 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 minutes. Just, run, just run down three minutes. All right. So the funny thing is, this deal was supposed to have been concluded as an early 2020, but then because of the pandemic, it dragged on for a while. And uh, Mike actually wanted to sell, but the Premier League owners and directors test could not separate the Saudi ownership that's the Saudi state now run by uh, Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi public investment fund. So they really needed somebody to front the whole deal. And that was why they got 80% of it. And then Amanda Stavely and our PCP Capital Partners brought 10%. Then the Ruben brothers brought another 10%. Another reason why the deal kind of stagnated was because Newcastle, uh, not Newcastle now, but then the other f- clubs were having issues with piracy. So because of the issues, the uh, we PR issues now between uh, Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf states, you know, they pirated Bain Sports channels and then they just got to watch Premier League almost for free in the Saudi states. And I mean, Premier League clubs were losing a lot of money because their own uh, broadcaster in the Gulf region was also losing money. Not everyone was paying, but they were watching it. So that was one issue. And lastly, the, there was also an issue of the public relations. How would it look like if you could just buy a club and then sports wash and almost all of the bad things you've done has gone under the radar. That was why it took so long. And to get the influence that these guys have, because of the impending Brexit and because of the huge amount of deals that the Saudi states through their public investment fund has invested in, in the UK economy, Mohammed bin Salman actually called Prime Minister Boris Johnson telling him that he needs to put pressure on the Premier League to pass the deal and if they don't, they could really pull all of their resources out of the UK. And considering that a lot of European countries have already pulled their resources, some American companies are thinking of pulling their resources, having a huge backer and a huge financier, like the Saudis, they pull their resources, would have been very, very difficult for uh, the league, not the league, but then the nation, and of course, by extension, uh, the league in itself. So that was really a huge uh, topic of discussion for a while. But now that they've had uh, Yasir Al-Rumayan front the deal as the non-executive chairman, although we all know he'll be the one running the things, Amanda Stabley has come out as the executive chairman, so she's the one fronting it, quote-unquote now, and the Ruben brothers also have a say on the board, but we know that it is really Mohammed bin Salman who is behind uh, this takeover from uh, New- of Newcastle, so he will be funding it. A lot of Saudi Arabian companies would really be funding it, would really be pushing, you know, it could be sponsorship of the stadium, you know, could be sponsorship of the training ground, you know, could be kids, you know, could be just backers of the club. So that's something that we really uh, expect. And it's also very interesting to note that this deal has come through shortly after a meeting where Boris Johnson was reported to have met with Mohammed bin Salman. So it could mean that 
the pressure he has put on Boris has been put on at the Premier League and it has it has worked for them. But however it is, the football world now has a new boss and that is Mohammed bin Salman. But I'm sure Manchester United fans will now receive this news with a very good heart because they were really hoping the Bin Salman will build them out of uh, their misery from the Glazers family. But of course, that's another conversation for another day. And interesting times in the Premier League, we've uh, got two women now, at least who would be doing it. We've got Marina Granovskaya right there at Chelsea. Uh, who has been calling the shots in, like, say, the last three, four years now. And she's been doing impressively well. So maybe not in the same position, but let's watch out for what Amanda will do right there with Newcastle. Let's talk about the trilogy bouts. Well, theory three, as it gets closer, personally, it becomes more open for me. After that second bout, you could bet your annual salary that... Fury would get a better Wilder, but I don't know. I've just been having this feeling that they would go the distance and it might swing either ways. Let me have your thoughts as we close. Oh, well, talking about it swinging either ways, I think both boxers really have uh, their hands full with this one because at the last check, this was the heaviest they have ever weighed when they went for their weigh-ins and it shows they both put on a lot of weight and they've put a lot of work into these bouts. And, you know, uh, Fury was saying something interesting. He said, even if Wilder defeats him in this war, no, Wilder was saying, even if he wins this one, there would not be a fourth fight. So this is probably last one between Fury and Wilder. And this also has a huge consequences because it would mean that if Fury loses this one, he loses his belt to Deontay Wilder. And if Anthony Joshua loses his rematch against uh, Alexander Rusik, there is really no going to be any belts in the quote-unquote Battle of Britain. So if they both win, then it's all on the line in the fight. And if Fury defeats Wilder in this one and AJ loses to Usyk, there is really nothing AJ is bringing to the table. Same thing goes for Wilder. If he wins this one and AJ defeats Usyk himself and AJ would go head to head for the unified heavyweight bout. So uh, for the unified heavyweight champion. So it's really a lot of storylines in the background. And I feel it could go distance. But Deontay has looked and sounded meaner of late, if, if it means anything. You know, that's more reason why I feel it could go either way. Deontay is yeah. raring to go, and Tyson Fury has the advantage of being the defending champion. Yeah, and he also and has the advantage la- of actually being the better boxer, you know, being on yeah. himself right now. He knows himself that uh, Deontay packs a punch. He, he has said it, I mean, a lot of times that Deontay Wilder has a very heavy punch on him. So if he's going to just be waiting around and trying to extend it, he might, he might be suffering a lot of. Uh, a lot of hits but the truth is that the two bouts they've had fury has been a better man so right now it's going to be kind of difficult for deontay to come up with something new he has changed the circle you know changed everything but i don't know if they he cannot he cannot do more than his ability can carry him so we have to see what it looks like but i'm still tipping as fury to win this one i mean the gypsy king has been on a roll uh recently i'm talking about the fact that he actually came back you know from 
very very long time out without fighting and he's still in his element and now that he's had two bouts which he was a better one you know coming into this one weighing heavier than he usually weighs and you know looking like he's ready to you know bust some ears you know it really would be a very very interesting one all right i'm sure by the time this spot is out we must have known the winner or the loser of that bout but let's just keep it as it is right now we'll return again next week for another episode of the podcast this is the scoreboard podcast with Olao lua and Masha. thank you Masha, uh, for the analysis on this episode yeah thank you very much Olalua. it was really a pleasure talking about it and i hope the listeners enjoy listening to this all right until next time my name is Olalua. thanks for listening <laughs>